talking about the life and work of uh, Roger Ebert, a film critic who wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times uh, for the best part of five decades, who sadly passed away last week. Um, I'm joined, joined as always by Ed Davis. Um, what did Roger Ebert mean to you, Ed? Well, I think uh, he, he meant kind of different things at, at different times. I think um, before I started writing about film, he was someone whose uh, opinions I... Uh, kind of stumbled across every so often um, usually if I was kind of like having a discussion with someone online about a film um, they would at some point usually cite one of his reviews uh, particularly about older films I remember the first review of his that I read was um, his, it wasn't really a review but it was like a response to um, Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. which was quite interesting because it was partly his assessment of the film which he really liked and partly his kind of response to the response of the audience because it was released um, and basically he went to see it with a bunch of sort of small children essentially because uh, the Chicago censorship board who he sort of railed against pretty much from his first day on the job um, said that it was suitable for pretty much all audiences because there was no nudity in it. Wow. Uh, And he said that at the screening there was basically just traumatised kids everywhere. Mm. Um, and I found that really, really interesting um, because it was not really like a review I'd ever sort of read before. Um, and, and he kind of freely admitted it. It wasn't a review so much as a response to the to the screening itself. But I thought it was really interesting to see someone who had such a sort of a, a personal and sort of political opinion in a review, which I hadn't really encountered up until that point. Yeah, it's it's slightly different to for us on well, obviously we we both grew up in in England, um, where he wasn't quite as visible a figure because obviously he had a a show on on American television. Uh, it was at Siskel and Ebert at the movies where they used to kind of review films with a thumbs up and thumbs down. But still, through people talking about them in uh, in films and um, when people talk about films, we kind of got to know him without ever actually knowing him, didn't we? Yeah, and I think also um, it's very interesting because there was, in the last sort of 10 years or so, his reputation kind of seemed to grow even more, which you wouldn't expect considering everyone always talks about the death of film criticism and how the internet is destroying it and all that sort of thing. Mm. You know, um, because he was so, uh, he embraced the internet and particularly Twitter in his last years. Um, he became, his voice kind of started reaching people who lived in countries where his reviews weren't syndicated or where his show hadn't been seen and uh, he became sort of this sort of global figure whereas before he'd been very well known in general but suddenly he was uh, renowned sort of all around the world. Uh, He didn't become kind of like a smaller figure as he aged he actually seemed to get sort of larger and larger in the consciousness. Yeah I think he was and even right up to uh, his death last week he was 
planning. I mean, he did a, a kind of journal post, didn't he, a few days before he actually died, saying he was kind of planning to rejig his website and do more digital content, and and he he really did go for it. When in in the kind of age of the the kind of snarky one-line bloggers uh, like me, um, they you know he he really did thrive, and you know he became uh, or was as relevant as he ever 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 was, I guess. Yeah, I mean, arguably even more so because, you know, um, he had uh, terrible health troubles for the last sort of 11 years of his life. He was diagnosed with uh, cancer of the uh, salivary glands in uh, 2002, um, battled that for, for sort of four or five years, and then um, complications that caused him to lose his, uh, his jaw and uh, chin so he could no longer uh, speak or eat. Mm. And the sort of the last seven years of his life, he communicated in conversation with people using um, notepads and then eventually an electronic um, speaking device where he could uh, type in and then the computer would speak for him. I see that there was a Scottish company who who put together um, a his actual voice for his machine pieced together from all the commentaries he's done. Yeah, they took like because he did ones for Casablanca and Citizen Kane and, and Dark City, uh, amongst others, and um, he uh, yeah they, they used that to create a, a facsimile of his voice, which he would then use in sort of TV interviews. I remember he went on and, and tested it in on Oprah for the first mm. time. He, he obviously uh, had known for a very long time, was a, uh, had been in a relationship with her, and then uh, was kind of a close friend and confidant for many years, and. Um, they then, uh, and I remember the interview where they tried it out for the first time, and it was him and his wife sitting there, and his wife hearing his voice, or something close to his voice for the first time in sort of like three or four years. Uh, it was very kind of uh, moving and inspirational. Was Roger Ebert someone who uh, popularised film criticism um, in, the, in, the, in the way that kind of maybe someone like a Pauline Keel didn't? Absolutely, because I think he was accessible in a very like you can read his reviews and you'd never doubt what he felt about a film. But he didn't feel that accessibility equaled dumbing down. You know, he was still very forthright in his opinions. He was still very intelligent. He still would sort of draw from all these different sources. You know, he wasn't just a sort of someone who only communicated through film. He, you know, would sort of cite poetry and works of literature as a way of bolstering his points um, so he was someone who just had this kind of great uh, reservoir of knowledge that he could draw upon but he then, he never kind of let that overshadow whatever point he was trying to make, he didn't feel that you needed to be sort of oblique or uh, sort of, that you had to kind of sort of aim too high or too low, he felt that if you know, something was worth saying, it was worth saying sort of intelligently and in a way that people could understand which I think played a large part in his popularity as a sort of a print journalist. Obviously, he uh, won the Pulitzer um, f- f- for precisely that sort of combination of intelligence and uh, and accessibility. But also, he was kind of the first celebrity film critic as well, and I, I, I use that word in the best possible sense um, because through you know television and through his writing, he was sort of someone who was recognised for for being a, a, a critic and a writer he would go on talk shows and stuff and I think that changed what a critic could be, they were no longer people who were just kind of consigned to a, a back part of a newspaper just kind of saying what was on 
Mm. Uh, they they could be brought on television to offer their opinions, but also about you know the world as well as about uh, whatever their subject area was. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that that like, he was kind of accessible and and he was also um, kind of respected as a critic and also very popular. They're, they're kind of two achievements that sum up his both his popularity and his kind of skill of, as a critic. Is he was the first, like you say. Um, film critic to win the Pulitzer Prize for for criticism, and he also was the first critic to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which seems vaguely absurd that uh, the least starry of jobs on films could receive such recognition in a kind of uh, popularity sense. And also, I think it's a sign of the respect that pretty much everyone along the spectrum sort of had for him, because you know people who read his reviews and and uh, you know respected his opinion they might not agree with it but i think uh, pretty much everyone respected what mm. he had to say um and but also you know fellow critics obviously had a great deal of affection for him um and you know enjoyed his sort of work but also i think there's a as a whole sort of multiple generations really of film critics who of, of uh, filmmakers whose work was uh, you know benefited from his uh, endorsement because he was such a, a widely read figure and a widely seen figure that if he saw a film that was um, sort of uh, obscure or did, hadn't had a big release but he felt was you know great mm. he would he would be an advocate for it he was an advocate for art as much as he was sort of an arbiter of taste and uh, you know you can see that in sort of like Hoop Dreams a film that you and I are both are huge fans of yeah. uh, was a film that benefited from that sort of thing uh, and, and you know there's countless and you know Steve James is, is currently working on a documentary about Ebert based on his memoir mm-hmm. um, uh, produced by Scorsese who also sort of benefited from um, Scorsese from uh, Ebert's sort of friendship and uh, and support over the years because Ebert uh, famously saw um, Who's That Knocking on My Door and declared it one of the greatest American films of like the decade which, and then, you know, said that Scorsese had it in him to be a great filmmaker in sort of 1967, mm-hmm. you know, before anyone knew who he was. And, you know, I'm not saying that Ebert was responsible for Scorsese, but you can see how someone of his kind of like standing, being able to kind of like point to people and say, you know, this person is someone to look out for or that people should check out this film, you know, could turn so many people onto it. Mm. Do you think he was at the, uh, watching the Oscars and when Marty won for The Departed, he was like, called it. <laughs> 40 years ago, I called it. I'd like to think so. I, th- I think they were, th- I, my understanding is they were really good friends in uh, in uh, in sort of real life. So I think that they probably, uh, he probably was just happy to see the great work he was doing regardless of sort of, uh, criti- uh, sort of award success. Yeah. He didn't just um, write criticism, he also wrote a film. He famously wrote uh, the Russ Mayer f- kind of exploitation film, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is, um, if you were to, <laughs> to kind of look at the films that have been written or made by film critics, I always kind of think of, you know, your uh, your French New Wave type mm. um, kind of prestige pieces, which Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is comprehensively not, but it's still bloody amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- that was the thing. You see, was someone who just kind of seemed to have uh, an amazing sort of curiosity about life so if he had the opportunity to do something whether or not it was uh, write a sort of sex exploitation masterpiece for mm. uh, for Rush Mayer he would kind of leap at the opportunity 
and you can really see that in uh, sort of the last years of his life when he was uh, you know on Twitter constantly sort of finding things that interested him and sharing them with his sort of followers and being a pretty much constant um, presence uh, on the on Twitter which I think is probably the thing that I will miss about him most in sort of the immediate interim mm. uh, because it seems like in all the year, in the sort of three or four years that I've been on Twitter I can't think of a day that went by without a tweet from Roger Ebert um, saying something about politics or you know life in general and not just films he was someone who just had a, a broad range of interests he a lot of people have said, and I kind of agree with this, that um, whilst you might not always agree with um, what Roger Ebert was saying, you always respected it because of the way he wrote it and how passionate he was about talking about it. He had uh, quite a controversial kind of views on video games, um, mm. which when I didn't initially know this, but when kind of reading off about him in all the obituaries and, and things, actually really surprised me that, that not only would he take that stance, but how he backed it up which was very peculiar, I found, by basically saying, um, you know, video games can never be art, they can never be um, elevated to art, but um, I've never actually played a video game. Yeah, it's especially strange considering, you know, as we've said, he was someone who embraced new mediums so readily. Mm. Um, But I think it was... uh, I think that's something that just kind of happens with any new medium, is even the people who are the most uh, open-minded about their own art form will struggle to kind of get their head around the uh, the sort of the, the nuances and the complexities of a new form uh, like video games. Uh, you can see that with sort of Mark Kermode has been of that sort of bent as well for many years. Although um, in his case, I think he reached a point where he said that he admits that he doesn't understand video games. So mm. if anyone asked his opinion on it, he would just point them in the direction of someone like Charlie Brooker who knows knows what he's talking about. Right, okay. And I think that's kind of the thing with with Eva was he perhaps didn't have that sort of uh, sort of knowledge of people who knew what they were talking about about video games because it was just something that didn't kind of uh, draw his eye. Mm. Uh, do you think that uh, Rob Schneider will be um, sad that Roger Ebert died? <laughs> Uh, well, I think that one of the things which I didn't know um, prior to Ebert's death, which uh, I'd subsequently discovered, is that um, after Ebert wrote the review of Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, in which um, he pointed out that you know Snyder had said that a fellow critic wasn't fit to review it because he'd never won a Pulitzer Prize, mm-hmm. um, Ebert then said, uh, I speak in my capacity as a Pulitzer Prize winner, Mr. Charlotte Snyder, your movie sucks. Ah, um, yeah. He said uh, he said that um, after he had had a stay in hospital and after he'd ha- he'd lost his jaw, he got a bouquet of flowers and a get well card praising his work, which was signed uh, from your least favorite act of Rob Snyder. Oh, that's so, nice that they reconciled. Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's it's uh, another sign of sort of the regard in which he was held that even people who were like Vincent Gallo is another one as well. Like obviously, he wished um, uh, cancer of the rectum on Ebert for saying the brown bunny was a piece of shit. But um, Ebert was, you know, willing to, and they had got into a very public sort of argument about it. Mm. Um, but when Ebert saw it, like a recut version of the film, he said that he thought it was much improved and that it was actually not a too bad a film in that version. 
uh, and the two kind of reconciled there. So I think uh, it's a sign of the regard in which she was held, but also the sort of uh, the openness that he had as a as a critic. You know, mm. he didn't kind of go into something wanting to hate it. If he hated something, he was perfectly willing to say, this is dreadful. Mm. You know, famously, you know, in his review of North, just kind of writing, I hated, 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 hated this movie. Um, but, uh, you know, if uh, if he kind of revisited a work and then realised that he'd been wrong, he was the first to sort of own up to it. Yeah. I, I seem to remember a quote coming from the whole Vincent Gallo affair where I think Vincent Gallo called him kind of fat or something and then Roger Ebert responded with like well in 10 years I'll still be fat but you'll still be the director of the brown bunny which oh, which, yeah, I, yeah. which I which I think is you know a pretty sharp retort he did have um kind of an enormous kind of sense of fun uh, mm-hmm. didn't he and I think that along with the kind of legacy he's left us we we kind of it we don't he doesn't feel like a stuffy critic or someone even someone who's accessible as someone like Mark Commode he is still seen by many people as a kind of over-intellectualizer of films, whereas Roger Ebert really isn't. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, as I, as I said earlier, he's someone who certainly wrote passionately and intelligently, but you never got the sense that he was uh, he was kind of reaching too far, or maybe that he was just kind of like reading into stuff that wasn't there. Mm. Um, or, or, you know, his you could always see that his interpretations uh, were kind of made sense or, or were he would if they were kind of obtuse he would try his hardest to make them sort of uh, ex- again accessible is the word we keep moving back to make them make it sort of sensical for a audience that you know is his vast audience yeah i think um what struck me is that now we're going to be kind of left with um, you know, millions of words that he's written over the years on film and that's amazing, but one thing that really struck me is, I went on Letterboxd and the, the kind of just a few hours after after the kind of news had came out, they kind of put a link on on the front page and I clicked on it and it basically takes you through to his uh, his list of great movies because he's basically kept this list going hasn't he since he started film criticism when a, if a, he declares a film great as in a film for the ages he will stick it on this list and he's published it in books that kind of keep getting updated and things like that and I think if he's kind of left us with, with kind of one thing is is I was looking at that list and thinking if I was 13 or 14 and I was kind of just getting into films and I discovered that list what a great kind of primer for for an education in film because there was a real mixture of stuff on there and there's some stuff on there I looked at and I thought well I can't believe that that's on there I can't believe Contact is on there Um, (laughs) but still like what a great way to kind of start and what a great guide to have and and, and we'll always have that yeah I mean like I think the the thing that I said a few times over the last couple of days about him is that you know when a great writer dies uh, it doesn't matter how much they leave behind it never seems like enough and you know he wrote so prolifically but at the same time you just look at it and think god he still had so much more to say yeah uh, and i think that's kind of the great shame is like as much as as uh you know we'll never get to hear him say you know what he thought of pain and gain next, yeah. uh, but you know he uh, you know you, you won't get any more of those great negative reviews where he just went and tore something to pieces but you also won't get any uh, reviews where he kind of saw something and was just, uh, you know, he he always seemed when he when he found a film that he loved, it was as if he was rediscovering the joy of cinema for the first time. 
Yeah. Um, which, uh, in his last review, which was published yesterday, uh, was for To the Wonder, the uh, Terence Malick film, mm-hmm. which uh, is a, a fitting sort of final sort of fitting epitaph uh, for his his work as a film critic, uh, because that is the sense that you get across. You, is just this sort of sense that he's seen something that he loves and he wants to sort of shout to the world and just say you know this is a great work of art that you really should be seeking out and saying why it speaks to him on a personal uh, and profound level well aren't you fucking glad that the last thing he reviewed wasn't like G.I. Joe 2 it was for a while there it looked like it was going to be the host the adaptation of the Stephanie Meyer movie Wow. Because that was the last one that he had posted personally. There were like reviews of current films which guests had written. Because mm-hmm. uh, there were other writers on his site. But um, yeah, then it, I was kind of like, that's not great. Because it wasn't even like a review that he, of a film he hated. So it wasn't kind of at either end of the spectrum. But for his last review to be a review of a film that he kind of fell in love with, it's, uh, it's more than sort of apt. Um, well, like I say, like uh, the man had an enormous sense of fun, and just to just to kind of uh, make sure that we're not going out uh, on a very sombre note, um, I thought we'd play a little game where I've picked out some quotes from famous Roger Ebert reviews of films that he didn't like, <laughs> right? And I'm going to read them to you, Ed, and you have to see if you can guess what the film is. Okay. Are, are you ready? I don't have a name for this game, um, but we'll just go with it. Or I don't have a jingle either. That's a real shame. But, you know, you've got to be appropriate to the situation. Right, are you ready for your first one? Sure. And I think you'll get this one, because it's a, a famous uh, panning. Right, the quote is this. This movie is a study in wretched excess. It is so smoky, so dusty, so foggy, so unfocused and so brownish yellow that you want to try Windex on the screen. A director <laughs> is in A director is in deep trouble when we do not even enjoy the primary act of looking at his picture. Uh, ooh, um, is that um, Sex and the City? Oh, if only. It's Sex and the City too. Think, oh. think, uh, think, um, kind of uh, end of an era type, late seventies, early eighties films. Uh, Heaven's Gate. Correct. It is Heaven's <laughs> Gate. Yeah, he did not like Heaven's Gate. I like that. That's a good yeah. one. <laughs> right. Okay. Next one, and think along the Heaven's Gate lines here. Right. A truly dreadful film. A lifeless, massive, lumbering exercise in failed comedy. The director has mounted a multi-million dollar expedition in search of a plot so thin that it hardly could support a five-minute TV sketch. This movie is a long, dry slog. It's not funny, it's not smart, and it's interesting only in the way that a traffic accident is interesting. Is that 1941? No, did he? Was he not a fan of Nineteen Forty One? I don't know. It's just the way that you described it. It just made me think that it sounds like it could be. Ah, uh, no, um, this that was that was his review of Ishtar. Ah, Ishtar. So you can tell he really liked that one. Uh, and this one, I've picked this one just for you, uh, Ed. Um, so here we go with this last one. Um, I have a quaint notion that one of the purposes of editing is to make it clear why one shot follows another or why several shots occur in the order that they do. This film has long stretches involving careless and illogical assemblies of inelegant shots. One special effect happens and then another special effect happens and then we are expected to be grateful that we have just seen two special effects. (laughs) 
Oh, it could be so many. I'm going to guess Transformers. Oh, you're close. It was Is Transformers it? 3. Oh. <laughs> but it really but, could have been. He could have reposted that review for any of them. <laughs> for any of them. But it was... Um, the, the thing about he, he's generally spawn if you don't even if you don't agree with the review I mean I, I remember I was researching a piece on um, a film I love called Zero Effect it's a really great kind of uh, alternate take on the, the Sherlock Holmes uh, mythos and I, I looked up what Roger Ebert thought of it and I, and he was like he didn't really like it that much and I was like oh, I loved it but he's kind of right what he's saying it's annoying um, that I can I can totally get what he's saying and that was his kind of gift really wasn't it to, to kind of get that across and but never really be that mean about it unless it was Heaven's Gate of course in which he, he really didn't like that at all yeah I mean I remember years ago because um, generally what kind of would happen when I would, would read Ebert's reviews is I would read a review of a film I loved which uh, he didn't like and then I'd be kind of like thinking well what did he think about the rest of the director's work and uh, I did that once with uh, his reviews of every David Lynch film mm. and what was interesting was that he started with I think he really loved Eraserhead, uh, and then and and uh, liked the Elephant Man, but then like Dune, which is terrible, but you know Dune, um, and then uh, Blue Velvet, famously he didn't like at all, and uh, pretty much no David Lynch film up until The Straight Story, which he loved, and then he also loved Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, mm. and I thought what was really interesting about all of those was his panning of uh, uh, of uh, Blue Velvet I disagree with entirely it basically boils down, boils down to see him seeming to think it should have been more about creepy sex than it was Right. Um, and I disagree on his general sort of response to the film but you can't he, he, his arguments were so good and so well argued that you can't it, it, it's impossible to dismiss his opinion from it mm. you know you have to look at it and think I disagree with this entirely, but it is so well stated that uh, it makes me reconsider the film from another person's perspective. Hmm. And that stands in total opposite to someone like Armand White, who you read his disagreement with the film you love and you think, yeah, this guy's just kind of an arsehole. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's a definite difference. If he didn't like a film which lots of people uh, did like, he wasn't being contrarian, he was just being sort of honest, whereas I think mm. Armand, Armand White is someone who is a terrifically talented writer who just basically uh, chooses contrary opinions for, to get hits. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, is not the best approach to uh, to film criticism, whereas I think uh, Roger Ebert's approach was sort of exemplary in a lot of ways. Yeah, he did it the right way. He, uh, he, he changed the game and... Uh, you know, and the game's better for it. Um, we'll just wrap things up now. I mean, you know that, like, you you know, you've done something right in life if you get a great piece written about you by The Onion, um, which yeah. there is a, lo- a lovely tribute piece to him um, done in the style of one of his reviews, which was really great. Um, but also, if the most powerful man in the entire world, the President of the United States of America, says um, movies won't be the same without you, then, you know, you know you've done a good job. That onion piece is absolutely lovely and a brilliant tribute, but it's only the second best um, Roger Ebert-related uh, thing the Union have ever done. The best one, uh, and this is one of the reasons that I love the Union because this is so bad taste. It's unbelievable. <laughs> the day that E. Gene Siskel died, their headline was Ebert victorious. 
<laughs> but to show, you know, I think that that was obviously them going for a really fantastic joke at yeah. exactly the right time. Um, but uh, also, you know, the, the fact that they uh, would then sort of uh, 14 years later write such a, a, a lovely and funny uh, tribute to him was just a testament to how much respect he was held in. Yeah, I think Ebert would have pissed himself at that first one. <laughs> I'd like to hope he did. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, I think that's a good time to, to kind of wrap it up. Um, so uh, he definitely gets a thumbs up from me. What about you, Ed? Uh, two thumbs up from me. What, four thumbs up? Yeah, the highest the highest <laughs> grade you can get. Yeah, I'm surprised that, that, that Siskel and Ebert didn't bother with having a four-star rating system rather than just two. I mean, they're really limiting themselves there. But yeah, okay, um, that's our tribute to uh, Roger Ebert. Um, and yeah, nice one. Uh, so, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you.